You know, in many ways, posterity is an experiment, an experiment where we test our own styles of conversation and communication. I hope that listeners are able to take away as much from these episodes as we do, and with that I mean further insight into how we think and communicate. In many ways, I hope this can be a source of insight to add to your social toolbox. Recording. Beautiful. Not, not that we are aware of it, but it's. <laughs> but yeah, it's going to be in the very. Yes. Yeah, so, so we have decided in our last recording that the way we're going to structure this podcast, which by the way, is called posterity. Is it called posterity? It's called posterity. Called it's called posterity. Our podcast is called posterity. People, we finally decided, <laughs> and we have agreed that every week we're going to talk about three themes. At first, we called it topic topics. And we called it issues and now we've kind of settled for themes but z why why three themes how do we come up with this why three themes uh three is the magic number right <laughs> <laughs> it is the magic number maybe that's it maybe that's it. it's just a magic number um i don't know three seems to give a bit of a like a good amount of wiggle room i think that's mostly what it was like we didn't think oh, we must talk about exactly three things it was like well let's say three so it gives us a bit of wiggle room and we'll see if we can fill it yeah and some balance. And the three things we chose for this week, and, and maybe, and you already said this, or rather, you're going to say this, <laughs> is, uh, is that, is that uh, the first thing or the first thing that we could speak about is always kind of the lessons from our, our last recording. Because in many ways, this is a project for ourselves. Yeah. Right? We set the goal of recording a podcast for six months. Every week, we're going to sit down looking to talk about three yeah. things. You know, life is moving incredibly quickly we're reading a lot of things, we're learning a lot of things, and we kind of want to slow down and hold on to some of these things. Mm. And so, you know, we're going to have things like books in here, things we read in the news, life hacks we came across, God knows on YouTube or our friends told us, whatever, mm. things on our minds, just, you know, those kind of topics we're going to speak about. And so this week, the, the way we went about it is that, or rather the way that uh, we would like to go about it is that the first theme is, is just looking at our last podcast. What did we learn from, from our last recording, what did we take mm. away? Where are we going to take it? And then we're going to talk about Range, which is a really fantastic book by David Epstein. Uh, Z, I think you're going to geek out because it was recommended by Bill Gates. <laughs> and then finally, we're going to talk about something a little bit more lighthearted, perhaps again, a, a theme that we will have on a weekly basis, as in end it on something more trivial, more novel. Mm. And that is the idea of fireworks versus LED drone displays. Fantastic. So Carl and you listened to our first recording together and you guys sat down and you, you spoke about mm. it a little bit. At least mm. that's my understanding. Yeah. And uh, you were telling me something about her telling you mm. to change the way you speak, something like this, and that you had the sensation of imposter syndrome. Tell us a little more about this. So I'll, I'll take the, the first point. So first point about why Carl felt I needed to change my way of speaking and two, why I felt imposter syndrome. Um, on the first one, it wasn't so much, a, uh, actually, let, let me just answer the question directly. She believes that I, uh, she believes that I give too much context to my arguments uh, and thus essentially preemptively um, swatting away uh, counter arguments before they can even be made. 
Right. Uh, and I think she has a very accurate, and she's said it uh, several times, and I think it's a very accurate diagnosis. Um, in, in this sense, like I try to, like, you know, even with the previous point, in my mind, it's very clear what my core idea is. Uh, but I almost put on a performance where I leave the best to last and wait almost for a punchline, which is the absolute um, you know, infallible point that no one could go against. And actually, it blocks conversation more than anything. It also it also certainly leads to to an extension of your sentence, right? Because you you never necessarily yeah get to the point. It's just yeah, exactly this, exactly this. As uh, uh, one of the ways I've tried to diagnose this is. Let's not. Uh, sorry, I'll uh, I'll leave that to the side for now. Um, the imposter syndrome is me expecting myself, uh, me having expected myself to be uh, of a certain level of confidence. Let's say pretty good at talking, um, then realizing, like in terms of the empirical evidence, that I'm not as good as I thought I was, which then makes these correlations down to my roots, if you like, of being a, an outsider in society, having come here as a refugee, um, being the poorest kid at a, at a posh school, um, and having been kicked out of Harvard. Um, so I think this is the associative link that occurs. Um, I have a certain expectation, reality differs from this, uh, and then the loudest um, sort of root reasons that come screaming are you know, you were never that good to begin with, uh, and maybe there are other things in your life that you ought to question. Um, I, I make it sound quite morbid. I genuinely don't think it's, like, that depressing, but um, it's certainly, like, uh, on the mind, and I think it does affect me, uh, yeah, uh, to be completely honest. No, I think that makes sense, um, because, look, at the end of the day, we're both in our early 20s here. We have gotten to this point by combining all of the experiences we've made beforehand, right? Uh, and you're not the same person this year as you are the year before that, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's kind of a constant development. So I'm not surprised that these experiences play into why you are the way you are. And that includes, quite naturally, the way you speak, build sentences, argue, so on and so forth. And that's, that's why I'm convinced that in many ways this is such a fascinating experiment, because... Mm recording these episodes reveals these things within us right yeah i mean if, yeah. if i had to you know kind of my takeaways from the recording and in many ways are quite similar to yours but perhaps packaged differently right so it's the mm. same mechanism but with a different headline so mm. for example i wrote down structure your thinking <laughs> uh, and as in with your thinking i meant mine not yours right yeah. but um because you you kind of you have some sort of headline in your head say one of the books we're going to discuss this week mm. and then you just you go on and on and on and there is no structure to it when you write this is easy because you don't just write yeah. away you instantly realize that your sentences are are four lines long and no grammar and whatever when you speak this isn't so easy so listening back this was very clear and then the second thing i wrote down tying to this directly mm. was to use notion to do this because I thought this was phenomenal, just as a bit of context for everybody, you introduced me to Notion, and if you want, you can you can pitch it a bit. <laughs> but I think it's a really interesting, um, really interesting program to structure your thinking or structure your research or whatever. And in this case, we use it to structure our thinking. And so, just writing all of these things down for this week is really helping me. And that kind of ties into two more things that I put down: plan ahead, think ahead pace yourself and don't get lost mm. 
right? Because, because it's 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 all kind of the same thing in a sense that if you have no plan and you haven't thought about it at all, I mean, you and I can do this, we can speak about it, but if you listen to it, it becomes very, very obvious that it's exactly what you've been saying, which is that realistically, we're bullshitting because <laughs> we've had no plan, we've had no thoughts, we're just, we're just winging it. And, and secondly, that then leads, in my opinion, to the sensation of imposter syndrome because realistically, if you don't plan, you don't think ahead, and you don't have structured thinking, then you are, in a way, an imposter because you're trying to speak about something without actually having any clue. So in a way, it's being an imposter. What do you think? I think on the on the just the final point that you made, like speaking on something that we aren't necessarily experts in, th- this I'm not so afraid of. Um, I, I quite like you know to talk about another label. I've been called a rebel many times. No, but um, I, I think I think you misunderstand with with being an expert. I didn't mean us being experts on something, but what I mean is that we 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 aren't at all prepared. And with prepared, I don't mean that you have a detailed dissertation highlighting all of yeah. the newest research. I simply mean that you can tell that we haven't thought about it at all in advance <laughs> and that as a result, we're winging yeah. it, which yeah. is fine. I, I would agree that winging it, you can come up with all sorts of great ideas, but I think it opens the door and makes it easier to, because we both had a tendency to do this, to bullshit and as a result, promote the sensation of being an imposter. Because this is true, you know what I mean. Because this, uh, realistically, you don't know. This is no. In fact, I think I do agree with you. The a piece of evidence that makes a lot of sense to me is uh, the points that Coral found really interesting in our previous conversation. Ah, what did um, you find interesting? Uh, right. So, so all of the, all of <laughs> this is so interesting. Wow. Uh, so, so the parts that she found most interesting were when you and I shared our own views on something um, as opposed to us debating um, like mindlessly um, and what, what I find well, why I think this is evidence to your point Cedric uh, is because when we share our own views right offer a brief glimpse into you know what consciousness is like for ourselves what our reality looks like um, like just purely subjective views, right? Or, or how we felt was on yeah, and our, our opinions. Yeah, on what this we're is this is authentic, yeah. and it carries weight. Um, and it carries weight as a as a sort of um, proportion of our character, let's say. Um, but then in the more objective, uh, sort of more philosophical level debates and concepts and theories, as stimulating as it is to us personally. So whilst you and I reap um, pleasure out of conversing and debating on this level um carl showed very little interest in fact she she uh, a lot of it was me rambling as well <laughs> like mostly actually and she just said this this, this is just you know visibly she lost interest um well whilst <laughs> i was listening with great intensity trying to pick up like what i was actually talking about <laughs> yeah um so so for sure you're right like treading into that kind of territory without preparation I think it compromises an element of authenticity uh, and hence makes it more difficult to listen to or, or puts extra burden on the listener. Whereas if it's just us expressing ourselves in a genuine manner, um, such as like this first half an hour, it's just been super candid. 
um, those sort of like theoretical level debates, I think it actually makes potentially for better yeah. listening. Um, yeah, I agree. Um, because at the end of the day, it's it's the value you're adding, right? right. Um, and but 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 this still and and well, I mean that's why you brought it up. But it still ties into what what I've been saying, which is this idea of you know structuring your thinking, the way we use notion, this planning and thinking ahead, because. Say if we, and, and this is kind of a moment to, to, if you like, introduce two of the things we'll talk about today. So, for example, later when we'll speak about Range, the book, right? We're not, or at least my intention isn't to, to quote all sorts of stuff and to really lay bare everything that this book discusses, but rather to just have it as a baseline and to have all of the information that I put down as a baseline for us to actually discuss our opinions. And that is why I, I started with this idea of having kind of a brief overview, be that a quote or something of this topic, to then use that as just a baseline for our, our thoughts, right? So in the case of, of coming back to what we're talking about now, kind of our takeaways from our last recording, that recording is our baseline. What we're speaking about now is our opinions, right? How, what do we think about it? And I think that adds the most value, and I would agree that it's the most interesting. This is this is uh, this is a really nice insight, Cedric. Uh, I might actually write it down. <laughs> oh, go uh, ahead, it, feel free. It, no, no, it, it's no, it's we we sort of establish a mutual uh, foundation of truth, right? Some kind of artifacts to work with, whether that be a quote from a book or something else, uh, and then we offer our own opinions on that. Yeah. Versus when we're at these high level debates, um, where presumptions are made uh, assumptions are, are sort of unchallenged and we wouldn't waste time challenging them either and then it just becomes somewhat some it feels somewhat meaningless it's hard for us to anchor our discussion so the point for more structured thinking more structured uh, notes as well um, i'm totally for this and uh, because the idea and and this is this is also why so obviously for all of our listeners you can't see this but the way I broke down these themes for us, for now, obviously this is a template, we don't have to stick to it, we'll see, is that we have a title. So, for example, this would be Range by David Epstein, which is the book that we'll chat about. Then there's a quote from the book, which in this case is a very, very broad quote, just to lay the theme. Then we have a theme overview, which is a list of four items that kind of highlight some of the stuff discussed. And then below that, a new category, Lessons and Thoughts. But my idea here wasn't that we read out and discuss everything that it says in the theme overview or everything that it says in Lessons and Thoughts, but rather that while we chat about it, that you can go through this and kind of pick out things that you find interesting so that we can form or rather discuss our opinions on it, right? Because the book in itself, summarized, is the quote, which is that the book argues, or rather discusses, how generalists triumph in a specialized world. So that alone you can use to discuss. Mm. But everything I put mm. in is just so that mm. there is more background information for us to work 100%. with. 100%. Um, Do you know what I mean? So shall we uh, give it a go then? We can. Yeah, we can. We can. We can. At this stage then, um, I'll introduce it again. So we'll chat about range by David Epstein. You haven't read it, have you, Z? I haven't. No, I gave it away as a gift, um, uh, it is but a, I haven't yet myself. It is a good. It is a good gift. I think I would have been delighted to get this for Christmas. I got other great books for Christmas, um, but <laughs> but this one I, I bought just about a week before, and I started it because I was reading something else at the time. I started it a few days ago, and this has been, I want to say, one of my quickest reads of twenty twenty. But actually, we're already in twenty twenty one, so I guess 
has been one of my quickest reads lately. I've really been racing through this book because I think it's, it's very well written. It's easy to follow. But above all, it's just interesting because, and, and this is why I wanted to chat about it. I think it, I can really relate to the book. And I think you can too, because correct me if I'm wrong, I think we're both generalists. I personally am a horrible specialist. I don't know anything in really, really kind of great detail. You know, I, I ran through my degree kind of picking up things I needed to, to, to make it work. But I was always interested in the big picture. I never wanted to go deep down into some theories or some models or some perspectives. I always wanted to kind of pick up as many tools as I can to understand the big picture and work with that. And so I was delighted when I read this because most of the people I know, frankly, are specialists. They're really, really good in some stuff, mm. like incredibly good. Mm. And I'm horrible. <laughs> you know, if we if we go into the details of these things, I cannot keep up at all. But I would argue perhaps that I have a kind of a broader spectrum to work with. I'm not sure whether that's actually true. I might just be horrible at everything I do and not have a spectrum either. So I might be a specialized idiot. <laughs> but I, I would like to think I'm more of a generalist. And I think you're the same. And so just reading how generalists triumph in a specialized world delighted me because I thought, great, this is my this is my book to success here, people. Let's go. You know, um, and so it was just really fun reading it. Uh, and so, yeah, I wanted to talk about it. And I'm curious whether just from the quote alone and obviously some of the, the overview I gave you, whether you would agree. I know you haven't read it, but I gave you an overview. I wrote a lot of stuff down for you to work with them. I'm curious, did does just this overview alone kind of give you that same sensation? Of, I don't want to say encouragement per se, but, you know, it, uh, something 100%. Like that. In fact, so the, the person... Um, to whom I gave this book, um, also found it, like, he's not a reader uh, really that much, uh, but he's reading this book very, very quickly and uh, um, saw him a couple of weeks ago and he actually, so the Roger Federer versus Tiger Woods thing, it's actually not the first time I've seen this case study. Um, uh, in yeah. fact, uh, I, I mean, uh, I've only other seen it as well as quoted by uh, from this book. Um, by my friend Adam, yeah, <laughs> and we had a very long debate about it actually <laughs> for about an hour and a half. Uh, so I feel like I've already been warmed up there, and yeah, he's really gobbling through this book as well. Um, uh, a question I wanted to ask you actually, uh, Cedric, on this: you mentioned encouragement. Um, for sure, I think this is what I would get out of this book. Um, the, the the question I wanted to ask you though was: uh, having read this book, do you think it's made you more? Um, more confident or more likely to express that you are indeed a generalist um, and that you are maybe less specialized elsewhere. Yes, definitely. Definitely. I think, but, mm. and that's why I was kind of torn when I called this encouragement earlier, because it's not so much just the encouragement of being content with that you're not a specialist per se in anything, but rather that you kind of dabble with all sorts of different skills and interests. But it's also that it's, for me, this book has really, because it just goes through different examples, all sorts of stuff. This Roger uh, versus Tiger case study really at the start is just to set the scene. And it's really interesting and it, it caught my attention instantly. So from the author, great pick. But it really, it, it goes, you know, one of, I'm, I'm not quite done with the book yet. I'm about three quarters through and currently it was just speaking about Nintendo and, and one of their engineers and how, again... This, this engineer wow. really wasn't uh, a specialist per se in electronics, but he was just kind of interested in all sorts of problems and solutions. And so one of the things he later came up with was the Game Boy, right? Uh, or, or moments... Sorry, a Game Book? The Game Boy. 
Oh, the Game Boy. Oh, my God. You must God, know nice. the Game Boy, right? The, of, yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, Sorry, I misheard. Yeah, 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 of yeah the classic handheld gaming tool. I, I mean, I had that thing as a child. I loved it. I still do. Um, but, you know, yeah. other examples as well from, from science to medicine, how you have these people really focusing, you know, they were speaking about these scientists who are E. coli specialists in the lab and how they were struggling to synthesize this one protein. And then you had other lab specialists who were not focused or rather specialized in E. coli specifically, but just more kind of from a broader background. And they, within, you know, hours came up with a solution to the problem. So this, it was just very interesting because it led me to think that perhaps so many of our problems today be that, you know, kind of on the broadest level, things like climate change, inequality, poverty, disease, or maybe on a more personal level, you know, how to succeed in your career or how to succeed at home, um, are sometimes best helped with an outside perspective, right? You know, if we if we take a look at some of the things we dabble with on a daily basis, you might be so deep into the weeds already that realistically you're just lost <laughs> and sometimes you need that external kick and you know, not to go off on too much of a tangent here, but to relate it back to, <laughs> to uni days, for example, um, I would remember that the most, the biggest jumps with my dissertation, for example, I always made when I spoke to somebody who had no clue what I was doing. Oh, really? Yeah, because I would, wow. I would explain okay. it. And then they would just, you know, kind of look at some of the problems I was trying to solve and they would... You know, they would make analogies and they would think about this from a completely different angle and it would just click in my head and I was like, yep, this is what I need to do. And it's those moments exactly that this book keeps on covering. So it was just so interesting to, to see all of these different examples and the logic is always the same. Mm. You... I really want to touch on that last one, actually, when, when you mentioned sort of um, speaking to friends who didn't like had, who had no idea about what you were writing. Uh, about what you're writing um maybe this isn't uh i'll take it uh sort of off uh off the beaten track approach uh, maybe this isn't an argument for, for generalists or like generalists triumphing i get the idea here is like multidisciplinary um you've spoken to someone else and like you've gotten a different perspective um however couldn't an argument be made that um because they know absolutely nothing or, or like next to nothing about your topic, they are so specialized that they have, uh, they have no overlap with your topic. Um, and actually it's the cross pollination of specialists um, that create the best works rather than uh, an individual generalist. Yeah. I mean, that is a valuable point. I have to say, obviously that that is tied quite heavily to the example I just used or rather by getting outside help. But most of the examples that are touched on in the book themselves really do relate to people who don't necessarily get outside help because the lab example, for example, you know, that I was speaking about, the lab example, um, they don't actually communicate. Those are two separate labs. It was, it was in a deliberate experiment where you gave them the task of synthesizing this protein and the specialized lab took weeks to do it and the non-specialized lab had it in hours. But they weren't allowed to tell the other group. So it's not like you had this, this cross-exchange. It was just to show, and I think you would have personal examples of this as well. I mean, I certainly do now in my current job training where, you know, I will look at certain problems that I have and I will relate it to completely different things that, you know, be that, be that anything, <laughs> anything other than <laughs> what I'm learning to do. And you develop these yeah. techniques and solutions because you make analogies, you make comparisons, you think, oh, okay, 
you know, so that's that's kind of the argument. It's not necessarily that you have two specialists for different fields and then they communicate and they have a solution, but rather that if you have a diverse set of skills at yeah. any one moment, you might be able to look at a very specific problem and take something out of a completely different context that you happen to know. And you put those two together and bam, you have a solution. Mm. Well, I'll, I'll just... um. I'm just worried a little about the the listener maybe not really knowing what we're talking about. Um, the case here is um, uh, for for generalists uh, and and specialists. Uh, two very famous um, sportsmen, Roger Federer, who's widely considered one of the best tennis players of all time, and Tiger Woods for golf, um, had very different upbringings and, and different paths towards their professionalism. So Tiger Woods, he started playing golf when he was very very young. And uh, I believe it was his parents who um, uh, maybe encouraged him to practice golf all the time, hours and hours. And upon achieving 10,000 hours or plus uh, from Malcolm Gladwell's outliers, um, you know, this, this is maybe how he became as good as he, he did. However, Roger Federer, uh, as, as, uh, as skillful a, a sportsman, um, also actually dabbled in skiing, wrestling, swimming, and even skateboarding. And I believe didn't start playing tennis until the age of 10. Is that right? Something like that? It was later. It was later when he started. It was even yeah. later. Jeez, wow. Yeah. Um, and Roger was also able to become the best tennis player in the world, you know, outstripping those who had started playing tennis since they were, since they were a baby. Um, so if this, this, is be, uh, this is the context, like which... Which part of this like immediately struck you the most, uh, Cedric? Um, you mentioned that this was the first chapter. Yeah. Um, what was it instantly here? Like, was it how did someone like Roger Federer become the best tennis player in the world when he did bloody skateboard? Yeah. No, I think what struck me was the was the underlying logic, and again, that's why I thought it was it was a great uh, introductory chapter because it touches on the idea, and then later it it just gets expanded with more and more examples. Um, because I think all of us know this Tiger Woods idea. We don't know that maybe he's the poster child for it, but we've all heard of this idea that, you know, if you start early, you know, kids learning piano from the age of two or learning all these languages or, I don't know, practicing mathematics from a young age. So really focusing on something that they will just be better because they've, you know, they've been doing it all the time. They've really been focusing on it. So they will be better. They'll be able to solve any problem in that context, beat any opponent. Yeah. And this example yeah. shows that that is not necessarily the case. In golf, it seems to work. In chess, we know it works. Um, maybe it could work in tennis. Roger Federer shows that the opposite works too, which is that if you have a more diverse background, in the sports case, you know, just different skills that you can, you know, that you can apply physically so just moving differently perhaps maybe skateboarding taught him balance swimming taught him flexibility maybe wrestling taught him speed and skiing Mm. looking ahead maybe for example that Mm. kind of putting all of those things together in a in a tennis context were fantastic whereas in golf Mm. it's more so focusing on the technique of your swing and then how you move about and then and kind of seeing how the ball moves through the sky having that that experience might be more valuable. Um, so I think it is a great analogy for this idea. Um, but again, I think we can apply it. And I'm, and I'm curious, can you apply this concept 
to something personal in your regard where you would say, yeah, I have had the ability because I am more of a generalist. I have I have a little bit of skills in all sorts of departments because, again, Roger Federer is an example for this. He is not an expert skier. He's not an expert wrestler or the best swimmer in the world or skateboarder, but he dabbled with all of them. He can do them all to some sort of level. And then tennis was a thing. And I'm sure mm. you will have examples of this as well. You know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of this. And, and putting all those things together somewhere was bound to have helped you. Or am I wrong? You know, you're completely right. Uh, and just as a disclaimer, I also find the title of this book extremely encouraging. Um, maybe the word I would use is, is empowering. Uh, and the fact that it was also recommended by Bill Gates, someone who I'd always seen as a hyper-specialist um, to build Microsoft. You know, you, you really had to be pretty pretty darn crazy uh, but later in his life of course like he, he took an early exit if you like from microsoft the day-to-day operations and uh, became the the philanthropist that he is today and uh, of course uh, maybe now he would more identify himself as a generous um, but to go back to the point um, uh, even, even though i feel very empowered by this statement i'm always inclined to uh, view it from uh, from from a, maybe a contrarian angle um for example, like, uh, like let's say the, the specialism of playing golf, or the, the, the success criteria of being a good golfer. Uh, let's take this as an example. Um, yeah, maybe it is being really good at your swing, being physically fit, um, you know, studying the game from a more academic level. Maybe these are the, the, the necessary skills one needs to have to become a specialist in golf. Do you follow me so far? I do follow you, yeah. Although you're not necessarily answering my question, which was to apply it to you, but I think maybe you'll get there. Uh, I'll, I'll give two prominent examples. Uh, one, one is my uh, application to Harvard, uh, and the second being uh, my venture capital work. Yeah. So uh, applying to Harvard in the first place, so it, was, it was very well known that the American system favours uh, a holistic student or a holistic educational approach versus a more specialist one that you get here in the UCAS, uh, for, in the UK with UCAS. Um, so the application over there was expected that you did lots of extracurriculars, so sports, music, volunteering, leadership, um, as well as having next to perfect grades. Um, an argument could be made that it's just setting the bar higher. Um, uh, so not only do you need to have really, really great grades, but you also need to be really, really great at a whole bunch of other things. Yeah. But um I think maybe this is uh, an unrealistic, uh, unrealistic expectation, and uh, I don't think it serves the argument of uh, generous versus specialist so much. Um, the the idea being like if you are really a, a a prodigious mathematician, you might not be able to get into Harvard because you're not general enough. Um, uh, in, in any case, uh, like the fact that I did a lot of music, a lot of sports, leadership, volunteering, and the whole bunch, um, and I enjoyed being general like at the time i i think i i like the idea of being a polyglot right of just seeming cool at everything and I, i'm sure i did it because uh, i felt like the social stand like the social credit i'd get from it would be would be much higher like, i just found it just more attractive more sexy um and this no doubt helped me get into harvard for sure um um, now, with venture capital uh, and m- the lead up to venture capital, uh, in my case, was consulting. Um, I happened to find find the middle ground between those who are extremely technically literate, but essentially had no idea how to sell or how to find clients. Um, and I merged this with, um, I guess, my 
natural ability at the time, uh, I, I found great effectiveness in being able to sell. Um, so I was able to interpret the, the sort of quite uh, often arcane terminology that comes with working with technology and development um, and make it um, legible <coughs> to the client. Um, so in this case, yeah, it uh, happened to do me quite well with consulting and also with venture capital, uh, being a little bit of both. Um, now, I'm not sure. Uh, so these are two examples of, I guess, uh, some uh, you know modest triumphs of being a generalist. Um, on the other hand, though, Cedric, I see potentially like missed opportunities where I'm more specialized. So you, um, okay, so, so you would say that you have areas where you would consider yourself a specialist then? N- not at all. Uh, I, <laughs> maybe I'm uh, like quite good at it, but um, certainly not specialized. Because I think um, what, what is entailed with specialism, uh, Cedric, is like one angle being sharper than all others, like significantly sharper. Uh, so you wouldn't expect you know, LeBron James also to be like a Michael Phelps or vice versa. Um, so he happens, maybe LeBron James is like incredibly good at maths. Maybe he can write great politics dissertations too, but he is much, much, much better a basketballer, like compared to the, uh, the median or the average than he is uh, a politics dissertation writer. Uh, I don't think I have a particular skill that really outstrips any other skill that I have by, by significant margin. Uh, even though, uh, and uh, no matter where the baseline is, maybe all of them are relatively high, but not, uh, not, no one of them is significantly higher than the others. But then again, doesn't that kind of prove the the point made? I want to, I want to actually, I want to bring a slightly different example that, that the mm. book introduced. Um, I'm sure you've heard of this concept of learning fast and slow um, by sure. Kahneman. I think it was, it was also a book, very interesting study. Daniel Kahneman, yeah this idea of kind of fast or rather it was not about learning, but it was about thinking fast and thinking. So, um, Mm. but in this book, there's a chapter and it kind of changed the perspective about learning fast. And so, and this, I thought was very interesting because I can relate to this big time. Um, and (laughs) it, it sounds like it goes in a different direction, but it kind of, it ties into the same problem. And he, and he lists kind of a series of experiments that people who pick up skills very quickly. So if you, if you, if you say, I'm trying to teach you, I don't know, a new economic model or a mathematic concept or a law of physics or whatever. And I give you lots of hints along the way. I make it very easy for you to kind of get this. Then you're more inclined to forget it very quickly. Whereas if I present you with a problem, be that this new model, this new mathematic concept, law of physics, whatever, and I don't give you any hints, I make it relatively hard to follow and you have to work it out by yourself that you will grasp the concept better and you will understand it better and you will remember it for longer because because you had to put the concepts together in your mind. You had to build these connections. You had to work it out and that is why it clicks. This sounds a bit abstract, but it goes in a similar direction, which is that if you're very focused on something, right, you're already really deep into this. So rather than potentially taking a completely new approach, which these students who learn things slowly or rather aren't helped as much did, they come up with new solutions. And so that's why they learn it better. Mm. Right. Do you kind of see where I'm going with this? I do. Yeah, I do. I, I think the 
the ability to learn, um, no, no doubt, is advantageous. Uh, I think the, the underlying theme behind all of this is we're trying to understand like uh, what is... Um, well, how generalism can be advantageous, how specialism can be advantageous, um, or which one maybe one can choose, or which one happens to be more advantageous. Uh, I think it's. I think we can both agree that the ability to learn is advantageous. Uh, so this allows you to learn a diverse set of things and allow you to learn them quickly and and with good quality. Um, but beyond this, there's also a desire to learn. So one can very much have the ability to learn, let's say, uh, but doesn't really wish to learn very much uh, or doesn't or, or only, for example, wishes to learn about theoretical physics. Now, I think I, I've been someone who has maybe had the ability to learn, a, a decent ability to learn, and I had my fingers in many pies, um, but I've never had the desire to learn one thing to like such a great depth. Does that make sense? Yeah. It does make sense, yeah. And I suppose it kind of it kind of ties into the idea of, you know, this book presents the generalist as somebody who can solve problems better, mm. right? Um, but obviously, or rather also also argues that we're, we have this tendency to have more and more and more specialization and that actually this is a bit of a problem because you have people who are getting so good at stuff that realistically they are, they're caught in a loop. Mm. And so... One of the things that, that I kind of took away from this is, do we actually change our education system? Do we change the way we kind of raise young people? I mean, are mm. we, and I suppose this is kind of the, the key question, are we currently teaching people range or are we teaching them specialization? And with this, I don't mean school, I mean university specifically, right? Mm. Because I would argue we're actually, or we have this tendency to teach people specialization there. The book certainly thinks this is the case. Um, and so I'm curious, do you think that is what we're doing? Do you think we need to change uh, our system, perhaps? Or is it fine the way it is? I, I think maybe the system ought to, to change. Um, the primary reason being uh, when, when you, when, for example, parents um, tell their children they're going to be chess prodigies or, or you know, di uh, direct them towards doing this, when the parent has made such a decision or when the system has made a decision that, um, a child's ability and potential is going to be measured by some kind of standardized exam. Um, both the parent and the, the exam boards in these cases are passing a judgment that they're essentially forecasting what society will need in the future. Um, and if they get it wrong, you end up having specialists who are not useful. And this is, I think this is far worse than having a generalist who's not useful. At least the generalist can be somewhat useful in a different role. Um, but for if tomorrow we had zero need for theoretical physicists and we have you know, 20,000 theoretical physicists, then it's going to be a tough, uh, tough road ahead for them and maybe for the rest of society as well. Um, that being said, the, the complete laissez-faire approach where a child, a parent, like, uh, in a, in a, you know, fully encourages their child to pursue their passion, let's say. Um, again, you might uh, get... Uh, specialists or, or even generalists that society doesn't want. Um, but I think the, the masses, like each individual deciding for themselves, it's, it's uh, maybe preferable to um, parents or, or any other kind of authority um, passing a judgment on the, on the future. Uh, just, just the final, final point on this, it's, uh, it, it, there becomes a difficulty with 
um, like accountability and ownership. I, I have several peers who are um, pretty upset with their parents for sort of forcing them down a single path when they were young. Um, and now that, for example, if they can't find a job or can't meet their parents' expectations, they get this pressure put back on them. Um, so like the Asian uh, family or the, the tiger mother is a good example of this, telling their kids they've got to you know, do math, they've got to do science, or be a lawyer, be a doctor. Um, and, and then simply like all they know to do is make their children work hard. But then come going to university and then come these children uh, trying to find jobs. The market is very different to what they expected. It's a lot tougher than they expected. Nevertheless, their parents expect them to become the, this, uh, this kind of success that they dreamed of when, uh, since they were very, very little. Uh, and hence, you have children who, uh, who might feel a bit um, you know, hard done by. Uh, you know, I wish I'd become an artist or I wish I'd become a musician, but my parents made me do this. Um, and now I'm in a dead-end job. Like It's making money, but I'm unhappy. Um, this is uh, this is my view of it. Do you do you have any um, strong opinions on this? No, I would agree. I think the the key takeaway is is rather than, and and I think that's why this is a particularly challenging question because, what do we even mean by changing the education system or even the way we do parenting? Right? Do you, because in a way, school, for example, does teach you a whole range of different skills, and then people tend to specialize in university, and then they tend to specialize further in their work, and and maybe that is part of the problem as in that that we have this path towards specialization because we potentially don't don't give the options i mean increasingly take the uk as an example we do i mean you did a liberal arts degree right yeah and this is uh, this is quite new in the uk because typically you know they had very specialized degrees whereas in the us it was always kind of more broad um so i think the key takeaway i would argue is that we simply give people options rather than forcing them into categories early. And in a way, I suppose this would would potentially eradicate the Tiger Woodses among us, right? Because we would no longer encourage children from a super young age to focus on one thing, but we would rather always keep their options open. And maybe that is also how you and I came about, because I don't know about you, but I really, I had all sorts of options as a child. I was never told, you need to do this. It was always provide as many opportunities as possible obviously you can't you can't provide everything right but if you can provide it try to provide it and then if that's what the child wants they'll take it if that's what the adult wants they'll take it uh, so maybe i'd really like to ask you like a little bit further on this cedric it's it's very interesting to me um the you, you had like all of these uh, let's say different options um like uh, how how did you um like find the desire to learn about these things? Uh, was it you wanted to just try pretty much everything and have a go? Um, like, since, since there was no sort of pressure, because uh, this I can't relate to, but I'm very curious as to how you found the desire to learn. Yeah, um, honestly, pure interest. I have always been a person who can you know, can be very motivated to, to learn and find out about things I find interesting and can be quite the opposite with things I don't. I mean, this sounds pretty normal, yeah. I suppose. I think a lot of people <laughs> are not inclined to be motivated to do something that they're not interested in. But for me, this was always very clear, even in school, you know, if, if you looked at my kind of my results, they were very good in areas I found interesting and they were not so good in areas I didn't. Um, mm. And then sometimes today I noticed that some skills are missing because I really, I just ignored it. 
I just ignored it. <laughs> so in a way, such I, as so in a way, I sorry. As, such as oh, just very <laughs> so many examples. I can't think of something specific. <laughs> okay. Time, but when I do, I'll let you know. Um, but uh, so in a way, I suppose I've I've actually had a tendency towards specialization. But then this isn't really true because yeah. my interests mm. have always changed. So if we look at kind of the mm. sports I went through or the instruments, it was always something different, you know. Uh, and you could say this is a lack of dedication or discipline. I would tend to disagree because it's not like I, I just put it away. It was just that I found something new and I also wanted to do that. So uh, take sports, for example, you know, as a young child, I was very into swimming. I still am. But then my focus switched uh, to motorsports and I was really into go-karting and I love that. Oh, nice. Still love yeah. that. But then uh, my newest focus eventually was, was, was shooting, actually. So, you know, target practice. Ah. Uh, still like that. But nice. again, uh, so it, it, there was a constant change. And in school, it was similar. I loved natural sciences. Didn't really like English. Grammar, I, I was <laughs> boring. I'm not a bad writer. I mean, I was. Now it's okay. Uh, but I just, I never liked that. Loved natural sciences. Um, you, you know what, like Cedric, do you think you could measure like how, how likely someone is to be a generalist or a specialist based on a very simple question on a scale of one to 10, how much do you, uh, how much do you value, like as a value, um, like dedication? This is a theme that I think crops up in, in what you just, uh, the story that you just told, um, like I, I'd always found very unappealing, the idea of like dedication for the sake of it, like dedicate yourself to China or dedicate yourself to the UK, you know, de- like, you know, dedicate yourself to working the land kind of thing. <laughs> um, I'd always thought like, why, why the hell should I? <laughs> um, like I, I will become, I think I will become dedicated. I mean, if you, if you observed me or if I observed your, uh, you know, your interests in, let's say, photography, but, but not dedication for the, for the sake of it. Uh, I think this must be discovered. But, but you see, this is why I think, like, specialization is, is like, um, it's almost like the promised land for me. It's always, it's always been the case, and I, and I hope this book will change my view on this. Uh, it's just that some people manage to get there a bit quicker. Um, just because you're a specialist doesn't mean you were, you were necessarily forced into doing so. What if uh, a six-year-old was really so fortunate as to know they wanted to be a concert pianist uh, and, and they really loved it quite as much as they did? Uh, a lot of the examples that I was given, like I, I've grown up with, is like, you know, the forceful parent. This was a... Um, but I think this book maybe will show me uh, something different. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, something I'm going to certainly be thinking over for this week, uh, Cedric, would be um, about this idea of the desire to learn. I think uh, the ability to learn got to be there but then the desire to learn is a, is a problem i think we haven't solved as a system yet uh, and books like this i think will be uh, hopefully one of many to come in this kind of new space of uh, maybe understanding how we get this desire to learn or how to recognize a desire to learn uh, and maybe even how to capitalize on it um, so i think that that wraps up uh, wraps up our first topic quite well i think um, it does yeah all right, so for our final segment of today, and you, you introduced this, I thought this was really, really trivial, really interesting. It's just this concept, I mean, we just had New Year's Eve a few days ago, uh, of fireworks versus LED drone displays. And I think you, there's no one better to introduce this than you, so please tell me, what well, was your thinking? <laughs> what is this about? So, so 
there actually wasn't a, a whole <laughs> whole bunch of thinking put into it. It was just on on that night on New Year's Eve. It was actually the first time I'd ever like discovered drone displays. Uh, so just a couple of days ago, uh, and I watched a video. I think it was on the BBC, um, and it, and it really blew me away. Like the, the sort of coordination that you could achieve through it. Like I, I'd known about drones for such a long time, but I never really known what they were capable of other than like sort of individual drones for a hobbyist photographer. Um, but it was it was really, really entertaining. Uh, and then I started diving into the technology of it a little bit more. And I was thinking that, well, in theory, each drone represents a pixel um, and drones, uh, I, correct me if I'm wrong, Cedric, I think they have like relatively dynamic movement and precise movement if you can program it well. Um, I wouldn't be sure if the... Um, the sort of turbulence of the air would actually affect their movements. Uh, but you as, a, as an ATC and an aviation fan would be able to tell me a bit more about that too. Um, but then also you could probably put speakers on the drones as well and then have um, all of them sort of blast out music in, uh, or, or any kind of sound effect in unison. Uh, and so it, it seemed to open a lot of new doors. Uh, and the direct comparison with fireworks is that, well, fireworks are bright, uh, they're dynamic, um, and they also make a loud bang. So I was thinking maybe, I, you know, I got pretty excited and carried away with myself, maybe that one day drones could replace fireworks uh, completely. Mm. Um, so, But uh, it sounds like you've known about uh, LED drone displays for a while, Cedric. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? And how did you feel about them when you first saw them? Well, I'm, I'm not actually sure I, I knew. I, I wouldn't go as far as to say that I knew about these displays longer. I had the... Because you sent me one of your tweets about this. Um, <laughs> and the video that was attached to this, I'd already seen. And that was the introduction that I had to this, um, which was that world record in China. And I thought at the time when I watched it, it blew me away. I thought it was fascinating. Really cool concept. I mean, you can literally draw and, and display complex art scenarios 3d anything in the sky using these drones i thought it was incredible um but it's interesting because i never once asked myself this question to compare it to fireworks and to use it for new year's eve granted i wasn't actually aware until yesterday that in london for the new year's eve celebrations they combined fireworks with these drones didn't they uh, this i don't even know like uh, new year's eve was a was a dull day for me um i barely realized the passing of the year <laughs> yeah i mean i think most of us felt that way but i but i think i saw something there um kind of combined fireworks at tower bridge with these drones and they kind of drew the nhs into the sky oh and stuff. yeah yeah um, it was it was cool did you do you think in in 20 years so give an entire generation of children to grow up into adulthood um and to catch up to where we are today so let's say in 2040 do you think we'll have more led drone displays than firework displays Yes, absolutely. I think the tendency is, is, is already, or rather the trend is beginning as we speak. Because, well, I mean, depends what drones they use. I'm actually not familiar with the detailed technology here, but it's probably in the long run cheaper than to blow up so many fireworks. Obviously, we also have the whole climate change debate, pollution, so on and so forth. If these drones use clean energy probably even a cleaner way to celebrate events and it looks cool it's probably easier to host it's less arguably less dangerous arguably i mean these drones could also fall from the sky and then hurt somebody but again arguably so yeah i think it's going to become much more frequent however whether or not it's going to replace fireworks for new year's eve mm, 
Mm. But, but you see like you see the I, I'm totally the same dude I, I really love fireworks um, like I'm a big big fan uh, but I think this is it comes from a fascination as a child right like as a little boy like looking up at the sky and seeing these huge fireworks and they're so loud like it was just great fun all around um, but a kid of today let's say a kid uh, who's like turning five or six um, amidst corona in 2020 sees drone displays on TV instead. Look, I'm not sure what it looks like in real life. I think it'll be even cooler in real life, but it's pretty cool uh, on, on a display as well. Um, but then maybe he makes that association with drones as we did with fireworks. Uh, and, and over time, you know, like we must feel some kind of, not just the nostalgia, but you're right, the novelty as well. The novelty is just because the fireworks are quite expensive, right? Putting on a display, is, it's huge cost. Uh, fireworks factories are also notoriously like dangerous um and i don't think people will like uh, you know i don't think that we'll see an industrial revolution with like more and more fireworks factories popping up but we will definitely see that with drones <laughs> we see it with drones for delivery you know yeah yeah for photography um there's so many applications like it allows us to manipulate um you know the canvas of the sky um, I think this is really, really cool. This 3D space now is completely workable and you have uh, pretty much limitless um, dynamism within that. So so long as uh, the air turbulence isn't too great. I don't know how these things perform in windy conditions, but probably a bit worse. Um, oh, who knows, actually? You've, you you use the drone yourself. So, um, like, is it able to self-stabilize, like, in, in the wind? Yeah, they self-stabilize pretty well in the wind. Uh, they don't really have a problem with that. It obviously depends what kind of wind we're talking about. Mm. I think mm. if you've got a severe, you know, severe wind, then no, forget it. But at the same time, fireworks would also be screwed. They'd also blow away, <laughs> as with the smoke and so on and so forth. What you could actually um, do is launch fireworks from the drones, like smaller fireworks. and Oh, like, yeah. So a similar kind of scenario to what they do in Taipei and in Dubai and launch it from uh, the tower. Yeah, 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 yeah. Kind of like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll be really nice. Um, yeah, as opposed to launch from the ground. Have you ever actually seen the fireworks in Taipei or in Dubai? Dude, I have not. Uh, I mean, I've seen videos. I've I've never seen. Uh, so Taipei, they they like chuck it from the Taipei Tower, right? Like um, yeah. like a flower. Yeah. And uh, and in Dubai, I imagine they do it with the Burj Khalifa. Oh, dude, it's amazing. Have you seen it live in Dubai? I've seen it live in Dubai, but it's oh. it's almost more impressive on video because <laughs> you get every angle i mean actually that's a lie obviously it's more impressive in person because you get the noise you get the bang you got the flare yeah it's yeah, yeah. It's a great time but uh but it's really cool in video as well but uh, i i i would agree it's a similar concept or or rather it would be interesting to mm. launch all of this from drones yeah <laughs> totally crazy have you ever seen I mean, drone bringing... have you ever seen drone footage of fireworks like drones in fireworks Oh, I, you mean a drone literally flying close to a, yeah. an explosion of a firework? Yeah. No, I haven't. Ah. Have you? I, I think so. Like, uh, so in London, we have um, a place called uh, Alexandra Palace, Ali Pali, where they do the, the darts and like things like chess boxing. Um, it's, a, it's an events venue, and they have a very famous firework over, over there uh, each year. And uh, I remember like looking at this firework display and seeing these like little flashing like red lights Right. And I realized after watching that these were drones. So I went home that day, went on YouTube and looked up drone footage of fireworks. And it's incredible, man. Like you would really love it, Cedric. Like as a fan of fireworks and a fan of... Dr 
uh, like I'm quite concerned for the drone owner. Like I hope they have insurance for those drones. Because <laughs> you can get insurance for these things and the number of plates and everything. It's getting increasingly oh, regulated. Yeah. That's cool. Shit. No, but I'd I'd love to see the drone display live because mm, mm. I am I'm not entirely on the same page as you in the sense that you said it looks very cool on TV and in person. I think on TV the problem with it is because it's actually quote unquote so perfect. Yeah. It kind of looks fake on TV. Dude, you're because, right. Because because you're seeing all these lights in the sky. You don't see the drones, you just see the lights. So on camera it looks like somebody just animated these shapes in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> Whereas I feel like in person you would just be blown away by the the reality of it. You just look Yeah. At them, the wow, aura of they it. actually did. For you know. sure, yeah, yeah. You're right. On screen, it's almost like it's just a like a graphic, <laughs> because like a digital it's so graphic. Good. Yeah, because yeah. it's so good. But in real life, can you imagine? Like, uh, for sure, like, I'd be blown away by it for sure. Um, yeah, no, it's nuts. It's nuts. I think a combo is cool. I'm not sure replace as an. I, I just don't agree with that question. I don't think we need to replace fireworks, <laughs> but I think LED drone displays mm-hmm. will complement it and will just be a really just a cool addition i like it i think mm. the more you can add i, I think that you great. can get like these maybe like hyper specialist drones like um it, tell me if this is just science fiction but can you get like a essentially a drone the size uh of like a, an insect or like a small bird like a really s- of a small bird yeah for sure right right sure. and one that is like like super dynamic um yeah right so because like led shows uh like led light displays for sure they're good and, and the question could be asked like why wouldn't you just have a huge led light show um but like I- imagine if you could like almost one for one replicate the effect of a firework with drone technology then, then in this like do you know what i mean I like because it will just look like lights in the sky like really but like specialist drones made to uh, emulate a firework so each drone is really small it flies really quick um, has a really bright light on it, um, and uh, and you know you coordinate it with. Uh, dude, imagine one day like a kid from their uh, from their bedroom could program a drone display, go out into the back garden and launch like a hundred drones from a box. Yeah, can you imagine? It'd be nuts, dude. Like this will be nuts, man. It'll be really crazy. <laughs> yeah, but I like it. No, I like the idea of it, and also the accessibility of it. Oh, yeah. Go on. No, 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 no. You first. <laughs> no, 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 good. Man, you sounded so excited. I can't, I can't yeah. take this. No, I was Go just going to say, see you all next week. Oh, yeah. See you all next week. <laughs> right? Like, we're we're going to do this again. I'm curious what we're going to do next week. Maybe yeah. we'll talk about COVID for the first time. Who knows? Oh, yeah. It's the elephant in the room for sure. Maybe, maybe for sure. not. Maybe, maybe not. Talk about 2021. Anything on your mind already for next week? Uh, anything on my mind for next week? Mm, maybe food. Maybe food. 